Welcome to the Shigon Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Fry. Today I have very two very special guests, the three pillars of the Shigon movement. My old teammate, Toronto Blue Jay, big time Division II slugger, Bob File, and another fella, Frank, we're going to call him. A lot of you know him as at NotGuyetti on Twitter. Met Frank about three years ago, maybe just over three years ago on Twitter. Actually thought he was Gary Gaetti. We'll get into that with the show, but uh, I'm very excited about this show today. These guys have been very supportive of the Shigon movement, and uh, we're just going to yuck it up today and talk a little baseball. So welcome to the show, fellas. Hey, Jeff. Hey, What's Jeff. What's up? Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited, man. I know we did... Uh, I guess we did it on the Rangers pod uh, mm-hmm. a couple years ago. Had all three of us on there. It was a great, a lot of fun, and uh, I've been wanting to do this since I started up this new podcast with Dave D'Agostino and the fellas. So, uh, what's new? What's new in your world? We'll start with Bob. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm uh, I'm still working in the tech startup world, so it's pretty busy and crazy working in artificial intelligence tech. So when we talk about analytics, it's right up my alley. Um, and, you know, back when we met three years, I was thinking three years ago, my daughter just turned three. So I remember some of the late nights I'd be on Twitter with you and and Frank and um, like literally through the night and we would be, that's when it all started, when my daughter was a newborn. And um, it, it's funny that three, three plus years later and here we are. That's crazy. Yeah, and let's talk about that little girl because she is adorable. Wow. Every time you post a picture of her, I, I take the phone over to my girlfriend. I said, look at this little girl. Look how cute she is. She is adorable, man. Yeah, she's a, she's a piece of work, you know? <laughs> of course. Keeps <laughs> like, busy, that's for sure. I think uh, baseball players' kids, you know, obviously uh, we like to talk a little smack to each other, never take personal, but uh, yuck it up a little bit and uh, – you know, our kids see us doing that and learn from that. And I know both of my sons have great senses of humor and mm-hmm. joke around a lot. And I'm sure your little girl's going to be the same way. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's funny. It's I was talking to Dave before the before the show, and he went to West Point. And yeah, as you know, my wife is a Marine, a captain in the Marine Corps. So um, we have a interesting dynamic here with her, with her. She's going to be a tough one, and, and it's going to be sarcastic as well. So and hopefully, I mean, she seems pretty athletic so far. We'll see. Um, but, you know, she'd probably be an artist or something. Who knows? <laughs> and Frank, not Guy Eddie, I, uh, what's new in your world? I know you uh, moved not too long ago. You don't have to say where if you don't want to. How did, <laughs> no. all, how did all that uh, stuff, uh, loading up the truck and moving Beverly Hills, man, and moving to a different, different place? How's it working out for you? Oh, we're good. We we moved up to uh, to Files, neck of the woods, actually. I'm back in my home state of New Jersey, and otherwise I'm here fighting the good fight on Twitter. We're, we're taking down the, the hitting gurus and celebrating the – great underrated ball players past and present and uh you know it's a lot of fun i'm excited to be here i'm glad we're having this kind of reunion episode because talking ball with you guys has certainly been a highlight of the last few years for me and uh yeah it's it's a blast man well you know unfortunately i think our listeners know that about i guess probably about two months ago i got permanently suspended on twitter for 
copyright infringement. A couple of the gurus didn't like what uh, the videos I was posting. So, But a lot has changed for me since that time. I kind of moved over to Facebook and Instagram. And Instagram has I've doubled the amount of followers, which I could really care less about followers. Um, but Facebook, man, I posted something I think a week ago. Um, and it has over a million views. And it's just a picture, not a video. Normally the videos get more views, but over a million impressions on Facebook. And I, you know, I just want to thank Twitter for opening my eyes to the to the other platforms that are out there that we can spread the message of the, the Shigon Nation. Have you guys missed me? Yeah, we miss you from Twitter. Yeah, I miss you from Twitter. Like I said, uh, Twitter's doing a lot of changes on the platform and uh, being a techie like myself, uh, it should turn out to be, a, maybe, maybe we'll turn around. Maybe they'll... Uh, unsuspend you one day but I, I, don't, I don't know about that you're i don't know if it's rightful or not probably kind of kind of bullshit but um yeah it's not the same it really isn't i mean some funny things are still there like i know frank you definitely do your underrated players or or was it under yeah underrated and um i know people it makes me laugh when people go back at you um because because of the sarcasm in some of those posts <laughs> you know what i'm talking about right like yeah, oh absolutely Listen, some of these posts are, are designed to stir the pot with the big spoon you know what i'm saying and <laughs> uh great. so so i love the i love the debates and everything but yeah jeff we we miss you because there's still plenty of hitting gurus trying to teach you how to hit a homer in an elevator shaft and you know we need frito to go after those dudes yeah, I'm doing it on other platforms now. Uh, you know, the, the HLP guys and the, it's funny. It's funny. Our favorite HLP guy, Lil Richie, um, he still likes to talk smack to me, even though he's blocked me and I can't see it. <laughs> and I, was, <laughs> I can't even see what you're posting, but you're saying Judy, Judy, Judy. And I don't even know what happened to Tragic Ron. I mean, Tragic <laughs> Ron blocked my mom. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on, Tragic Ron, what are you doing? I mean, Tragic Ron's a national treasure. Every time I saw him on there <laughs> talking about how great little Richie was, I was like, come on, man, you're selling a T on a string, and you're talking about you know something about baseball. Jeff, you're living rent-free in the billiard hall. No doubt, and I'm getting good at <laughs> pool, too. I've been spending a little bit, probably a couple nights a week I've been shooting pool, so um, never know. We may have a uh, – well, listen, you're two years of watching Barry Bonds tapes away from being the next hitting guru. I'm going to watch Minnesota Fats in my basement for two years. And see if I <laughs> <a great> player. <laughs> so, File, File, I want to uh, – first off, Bob File and I were teammates my last year in the big leagues in 2001 with the Blue Jays. It was his rookie season, and he had a heck of a season. And then we never got to play with each other again. But I know you, yeah. you moved on, I guess, a little bit to the Cardinals after that. And then uh, – but, I, I mean, you had a great rookie year as a guy who was drafted as a position player. So I want you to tell the listeners a little <laughs> bit about your story and how you made it to the big leagues, if you don't mind. So I'll give you, like, the short version. So ultimately um, – it's funny. I was just at an event at my high school. They do, like, this baseball event. I, I, was, I went to kind of um, – support some of the guys that played in the program there and uh you know i saw my head coach that was there and, and we talked a little bit about he's older now and we talked a little bit about why he never pitched me in high school not an inning and um because he had this thing he wouldn't have two-way players he would only have you're either a pitcher or a position player that's it and i want to play shortstop so i did that and then i went to college 
as a as a shortstop third baseman, played mostly third in college, a little bit of short, and then um, pitched a few games while I was there. Just Division two, me and Dave were talking. I went to Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science, which was which is now Jefferson University, and um, you know we have limited arms and D two program in the Northeast. So I pitched a few games, and um, I was lucky to have scouts out there w- watching me um, play play third base and hit, and ultimately. Got drafted by the Blue Jays, and, and Ben McClure was the, the scout that, that drafted me. And the thing is, you know, for me, there's a lot of luck involved too, right? Like Ben McClure was a four, like 35-year-old veteran scout of the Blue Jays. So what he said, when he says take somebody, the Blue Jays were going to listen at the time. It wasn't like some rookie scout. So it held some weight. So when I was drafted as a third baseman, Ben said that I could pitch possibly, and he would rather me come in as a pitcher. And, you know, at the time I signed and I was like, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes. So they sent me out to Medicine Hat as a pitcher, which, again, I pitched limited. I pitched in Little League and things like that. But, um, you know, a lot of the reason of my getting to the big leagues, besides, you know, there's luck, there's timing, was the fact that I just studied the game. And, and I really, we talked about analytics today. I really tore apart books. I mean, I look at my bookshelf now and I always talk about it. I have like the ABC, the pitching. Um, I have Noel Ryan's Pitching Bible. I still have these books I bought at the time because the internet wasn't as, wasn't as huge as it is now. And I would just read and study how to pitch. And um, being a former hitter, you know, pitching inside was a big thing for me, um, especially through professional baseball, like making hitters scared. Because I hated being that as a hitter. And I'm sure you, Jeff, if, if somebody got one in on you, really make you move your feet and like they were going to drill you and they're going hard, you would think twice about, you know, Dipping in over the plate and really taking one, taking a, taking a hack. Like I see some of the hacks in today's game. Um, so ultimately, I credit a lot of that to just mental mental capacity to learn the game, learn how to pitch, and have some good luck and timing. And ultimately, was lucky enough to get to the big leagues within like three years and, and play with you in Toronto in two thousand and one. And um, again, the, the getting to the big leagues is you know you have a better chance. I, I think I read after I was done a better chance of hitting the lottery than getting to the big leagues from the minor leagues. At least it used to be. Um, it was like 0.002% of guys drafted made it to the big leagues. And um, I always say now, if I knew those stats when I was playing in the minor leagues, I, I don't know if I would have made it because I'd be freaked out by that. But um, but yeah, so ultimately was a hitter my whole life. And then I would say that I credit a lot of my pitching success to, to being a hitter and knowing how hitters think. And the only time I got a lot of trouble pitching is when I gave, when I did, gave the hitters too much credit. You know, like the Manny Ramirez bombs, he would hit off me. Like I would, I would think he was looking for a pitch and he wasn't and things like that. So I think the mental side of the game, like one thing from playing with like Dan Plezak, Paul Quantrill and some of the other great pitchers, even like Pat Henkin, he played, I played with a season with him. Um, the, the mental, the mental sharpness and capacity of understanding the game far outweighed their physical abilities, especially like Plezak and Quantrill. I mean, stuff wise, they were average. But big league, well, I mean, they were they were they played what 15, 20 years in the big leagues because they were so they knew how to they knew how to play the game uh, from a mental side, and I think um, that side gets a little lost. Say, there's so much physical specimens that play the game. Every athletic, every every sport now, you see the the type of training they do in terms of physical fitness, and I'm impressed by like just some of the big leaguers in the game that are just the the, the strength they have, the, just the I mean the how fast they are, the speed. But I think a lot is lost in the mental side of the game in terms of understanding the game, understanding, making adjustments. And that's why we see games with, you know, I'm not going to go off on a soapbox here. We see games with like, you know, 17 Ks in a game on both sides of the baseball, which 
drives me crazy. But um, but yeah. Well, thank you, yeah. sir. I uh, and I agree with you. The uh, you know, the physicality of these guys is off the charts now. Ugh. I think what we as true fans of the game, which I know all four of us are, we don't see the nuances of how to play the game anymore. We don't see the baseball IQ where maybe an undersized guy, guy not so physically gifted, a Dustin Pedroia, somebody like that, who's just a smart baseball player. Well, he's in the right he, spot, he, always doing what the game calls for him to do. We don't see that. Now we just see these guys bailing and wailing for homers. And um, to me, it's taken away a lot of the enjoyment of the game. Well, I always talk about, and I talk about with Frank, and you can you can comment on this too. We always talk about the debate we had years ago on Twitter. And I always talk about, because I face both hitters in double-A, Juan Pierre and Adam Dunn. And you look at Adam Dunn, he's like a 6'6 specimen that dropped bombs. And then you have Juan Pierre, who I don't even know would make it to the big leagues today. And the guy was probably one of the hardest athletes I've ever faced. And every time he came up to the plate, it drove me crazy because I knew he might bunt. I had to jump off the mound. I knew he would be like just trying to slap the ball the other way, and I was a sinker ball pitcher. Whereas Adam Dunn, yeah, he might get you once, but he had holes where you could get him to ground out, get him to strike out. But but Juan Pierre would not strike out against me, at least. Like I could not get – he would always get the bat on the ball, which caused the defense to be on their toes. And that kind of disruption, you can't really quantify the pitcher's mind on that. Like you can't, people don't know how I was thinking, how I was just like all over the place mentally facing a guy like that. And you just can't quantify that in numbers and metrics. And I think that's what's missing from big time today. And I don't know if it's going to come back ever. It might come back around. Um, but again, the game is just played differently now. Yeah. And, and Juan Pierre, I played with Juan in Colorado when he first oh. got called up to the big leagues and he would go out early every day and work hardest worker on just on bunny. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, this guy is looking. Com- this guy is committed. You know, he's out here. And yep. the other thing that comes with that, the guys like Juan Pierre, Kenny Lofton, Vince Coleman, Ricky, Ant- they put so much pressure on the defense yep. that people don't realize that. People don't realize what it means when you have to come in two steps because this guy might bunt, and what that does for your range as far as ground balls getting through the infield. And you don't see that much anymore. Now you have guys like Aaron Judge and Kyle Schwarber hitting lead oh. in the major leagues. I know. I know. One more at bat, two games a week. And somehow that's going to help our team win. What do you it's, think about that, Frank? It's really tough to quantify the, the things that File's talking about, right? Putting mental pressure on the pitcher, putting mental pressure on the infielders. And so every time we resurface this debate, which again, we always use Dunn as kind of the prototype for that sort of player and Pierre as the prototype for that sort of player. Um, A repeating pattern we notice is that the guys who love to quantify things always choose Adam Dunn. They don't care that he struck out 220 times a year, um, that he was a three true true outcome player. Um, You know, people clap back with arguments like, well, even in the season that Juan Pierre had 220 hits or whatever, he was still below (laughs) average offensively. And because he was low weighted runs created plus, and he was this, that, and the other thing. And I'm thinking, man, like if you weren't so hell bent on quantifying every last thing, you'd see the kind of pressure that he puts on a pitcher. Like imagine you're trying to, 
you're trying to approach this guy and yet the, the top thing on your mind is shit i'm gonna have to get off the mound and like field this and make a play yeah which you don't have to think about with Dunn at the plate. Like he's trying to right. do one thing. He's trying to take his walk or hit one in the third deck. And um, it's just, it's, it's weird that there's people on both sides of this thing who literally like don't see the size of the barrier that's separating them and don't realize that it's this obsession with quantifying it that, um, you know, makes people fall to one side or the other. So I always think it's very, very interesting to bring this up and, just some of the some of the comments are, are wild. Yeah, and the, uh, well, now now you know. I know you wanted to talk a little bit about this, uh, Frank. <laughs> it's, you know, a couple of new guys getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, and it seems like <clears throat> now we are determining who goes into the Hall of Fame based on their WAR. And there's a lot of players, man, that or kind of on that bubble of whether they were hall of famers or not, who didn't have, you know, a 70 war, like a Scott Rowland, maybe a 50 will Clark, I think is in the fifties. He's not in the hall of fame. Harold Baines is like below 50. He's in the hall of fame. I mean, when did we, when did the determining who is a hall of famer or not change so much? And I just think it's, terrible that so many of these guys who are right on the bubble a todd helton is a no doubt hall of famer played with a dude dude's maybe the best hitter i ever saw in the major leagues and he's not even in the hall of fame yet but harold baines is yeah it's um i think scott Rowland is definitely a guy who through the analytics lens his career looks more impressive now than it did at the time like um you know, everyone who is a fan of analytics and war and everything, they see that Roland kind of was the total package. He hit well. He played great third base. If you add it all together, look at it through a sort of modern lens, he's, you know, perhaps a top 10 third baseman all time. I think fewer people during his career were like, this man is going to have a plaque in Cooperstown. Like everyone knew he was good, but I don't know that he definitely inspired the same kind of just awe that some of these other no doubt Hall of Famers did at the time. He's definitely a guy that analytics helped. And then, you know, I don't think analytics looks very favorably on Fred McGriff, who is the other gentleman that's going to be going into Cooperstown this summer and who, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, is my favorite player of all time. Uh, I'm really excited to see him going in, but, you know, analytics folks look at crime dog and say, Oh, he was a longevity case. And he just, he was a compiler. I hate when they call guys compilers. Um, but you know, he's someone who missed his chance on the writer's ballot. I think they really botched that, but the satisfying thing for Fred McGriff is that when he was on the veterans committee ballot this year, he was voted in unanimously. He was 16 for 16 ballots and the more I think about that, the more I think, you know, it is really satisfying to be voted in by a hundred percent of your peers and real baseball folks than just hitting the 75% of, you know, some baseball writers who may or may not follow the sport that closely. Yeah. And a lot of the newer writers um, are, are young guys who maybe saw some of these guys playing when they were babies. <laughs> Or in their early childhood, mm -hmm. 
And all they base everything off of is the numbers. That's it. They look at the numbers. That's why they vote for every guy that we know um, got caught using steroids regardless. They look at their numbers. They have Hall of Fame numbers. They should be in. Who cares? They did steroids. Everybody did steroids. Let's vote them all in. And then we have the older guys who saw what happened during the steroid era and saw guys body types change and all of a sudden Brady Anderson's hitting 50 homers and he never hit more than 20 and they hold that against the guys but it seems like the new voters the younger guys are just mm-hmm. voting everyone in just based on their stats yeah and Jeff yeah, I mean I go ahead. I'm, I'm yeah. not even kidding I can't remember who said it but I heard uh I heard somebody say that the current Hall of Fame voting process should be replaced by uh, if you reach 50 career war, you're automatically in. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> well, I think I think, I think players because he's such a great <laughs> defensive player that every year he gets a you know one or two positive war based strictly on his defense and his offense brings his war down. If he plays another 10 years, he could get close to 50 if he turns it around. <laughs> and he could be a Hall of Famer after hitting 199 in the big leagues for his first seven years. You know, he's a great yeah, example a, of what – oh, sorry, Bob. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I think uh, I think the voting process should be former players, quite frankly. Yep. Um, I just think that makes more sense. Because I think the – not to say that we're not getting a lot of them. I, I personally think these two guys getting in should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean – I, I played a couple months with Roland. I got to know him a little, a little bit. But I was, I, I, I was a fan of his in Philadelphia when I was before I played pro ball. And um, I mean, he was in pretty to play seventeen years. I think he played like seventeen years in the big leagues. And McGriff played what nineteen, maybe. I mean, anybody to me and Jeff, you played what nine or ten, and I played three and a half. And three and a half to me felt like an eternity. And anybody can play over ten, seven to ten to twelve to seventeen seasons. I mean. There's there's something to be said for that piece, and I know. I mean, I look through it, look at it through a different lens than like your average fan too. Like I'm a little jaded because I, I know the back end of baseball and, and what goes on on and, and to see guys longevity of careers without with having injuries and and still playing that long. I mean, there there has to be a little checkbox for that. Like that's impre- That's 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 more than impressive to me. I mean, people have no idea how hard it is to stay healthy and play basically year round at a high level like that. And I think, um, and I think defense gets lost a lot too in the, in the voting process. I think a lot of, and, and like you said, Jeff, we talked about the steroid error. I mean, which was the height when I was playing and um, you know, they, they typically will not vote guys in that either got caught doing something or that had body changes that they assumed they did something. But I, I mean, I know I mean, the amount of guys you, you and I both know that, that, <laughs> I mean, People will never know till today, and uh, you know it's uh, so it's kind of like a it's a weird thing. It really is. Like I mean, I don't know. I'm on the I'm on, I'm on. I feel that like the Barry Bonds and the Roger Clemens. I mean, I mean, shit. They should both be. I mean, I mean, I mean, you're talking best of the best ever, ever. Yeah, I don't care whatever. But um, but yeah, you know, I, I just think the two getting in the shit definitely are uh, worthy. Well, make sure. make a separate wing. Make a put an asterisk by their name, asterisk by their name, if you have to, um, and say these are the you know the best players during the steroid era, um, you know, and just explain it to people why they're not in the 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 rest of the Hall of Fame or the normal Hall of Fame because of the questions about their steroid use, 
but they definitely are part of the history of the game. And during that time, were the best players on earth. They deserve to be in there. Now, we know that there's guys in there right now who did steroids. We won't mention names. Um, I know some of them personally. We know they did it, and they never got caught. Maybe they get credit for being smarter than the other guys. I don't know. Um, But there's so many guys that were the best players when I played that are not in, a Palmero, a Manny Ramirez, McGuire, Clemens, Bonds. These guys were the best of the best. Sammy Sosa, they were the best players, the best hitters, best pitchers in the game. I do believe they belong in there somewhere, maybe not next to Babe Ruth and Ted Williams and those guys, but we have to recognize their greatness on the baseball field. What do you think, Frank? So I actually visited the Hall of Fame uh, just a couple of years ago, and every time I go there, it's I find it so inspiring. It's one of the most amazing places on earth. And uh, yeah, those guys don't have their plaques hanging in the hall, you know, with Babe Ruth and Ted Williams and all the legends, but they are well represented in the museum component. There's all kinds of artifacts and and game used relics from all of those guys, um, you know, bats and, and uniforms and everything else. So, uh, I mean, they are represented. They were part of the game. I don't think you can tell the history of baseball without Sosa and McGuire and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Um, as to whether they deserve plaques hanging with the, uh, you know, with the with the legends in the hall itself, that is a tough question that I have found myself going back and forth on over the years. These days. I'm considering myself much more of a big hall guy. And as Jeff mentioned, there are some guys already in there who did use steroids. And so at this point, like playing the sanctimonious game is not going to, you know, fix anything that the seal has been broken. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to represent the best of the best, um, I think, I think writers are within their rights to vote for those guys at this point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Thanks, Frank. Dave, you got a question, buddy? Yeah. You, well, usually I wait till the, the last hour to derail the show and turn it into a selfish question that only I care about. So I, I figured I'd get in early today. <laughs> um, what, what do you guys think about Pete Rose? I, I've always thought the Hall of Fame was it's a, it's a historical museum and it should be treated as such. Um, as you guys are talking, these great hitters and, and pitchers that were accused of steroids, the good, the bad, and the ugly needs to be in there. It's a part of history. Um, Pete Rose was in full disclosure, one of my all time favorite guys to watch, uh, love the way he played the game and, and, and I'm a believer that should be in there in some capacity. Uh, what, what are your guys thoughts on Pete Rose? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I, like Frank said, he goes back and forth. I go back and forth because Pete Rose was like a Philly legend for a while too. And, um, that's, that's a tough one for me because. I, I don't know. I um, I think for what he did on the baseball field, yeah, of course. But I mean, and gambling is so widespread now; it's legal mostly everywhere. Where we have all the different apps, anybody can bet on anything. I know that's some of the argument now, but I mean, if if it's true, like you know, it seems like all the evidence was there. I mean, he bet on his own team and right? was managing the team. I did. I, I have a huge issue with that personally. Um, that's like that's like the uh, NBA ref that was fixing games. 
I mean, you can control the outcome of the game. If he doesn't bring a pitcher in, I mean, he can do things. I don't know if that happened, but I think if, so it's hard because then you hear stories about like Ty Cobb and people in the Hall of Fame and how bad dudes they were and they did some crazy stuff. So then like what Pete Rose did on the field, um, I think it's, because it's not like, I don't know, was he, I don't think he was ever, and you guys can correct me, I don't think he was ever accused of like betting with a player. So maybe he should be in because of what he did on the field. I mean, because he was the best hitter basically ever in terms of number of hits. Could you put an asterisk by his plaque and say he was, you know, thrown out of baseball because of gambling with that? I, I guess you could tell the story now like that. I think you could. I think you could now because it's been long enough and I think commissioners have changed. I think you could you could tell that story and be part of the story of him being in the Hall of Fame, which, may, again, it's historical museum, really, and it tells the history of it. But I think we should do the same with, like, the steroid era players because, for, like, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens not to be in the Hall of Fame. That's, like, crazy to me. But I played against those guys, whereas I didn't play with or against Rose. So, I, I mean, I only know what I see on TV and highlights and when I was a kid. Um so again, I'm more biased towards like the Clemens and the and, and the Bonds and things like that. But I think if it's a historical museum, then you have the good, the bad, and the ugly in there, like you said. I, I agree with that. I think it. So again, I go back and forth again. Now I'm like, okay, he should definitely be in. <laughs> you know, it's it's hard for me because oh, you're flip flopping. What do you think? I am. I, I. Well, I mean, the difference between PEDs and what Pete Rose did is that. PEDs involve cheating to improve your own performance as a player. And what Pete Rose did did not implicate his performance as a player. During his playing career, he did truly remarkable things. I mean, he maintained a 303 batting average for more than 14,000 at bats. Right, forty-two fifty-six is a big number. That's a lot of hits. He played mm-hmm. the game harder and more aggressively than almost anyone else. He was a fierce competitor. He, you know, played so many different positions throughout his career. He played for twenty-four years, and mm-hmm. it wasn't until he was managing that he was implicated in, uh, you know, the gambling thing, which, you know, as File mentioned, sports betting now is huge. Teams and leagues encourage it. They advertise it. Everyone's got an official sports betting partner, right? Every team, Mm -hmm. every league. And, you know, they're monetizing it. They're capitalizing on it. They're making sports betting one of the focal points of professional sports now. Having said that, um, it's really still just one of the most egregious violations of competitive sports that you can think of. The Sports are only fun. They only have their appeal. They only serve their purpose if they're fair. And it's about, you know, may the best team win. So anytime you cast kind of a cloud over that, it's really, really, it's hard to overcome. But having said all of that, I believe that Pete Rose would probably be in the Hall of Fame by now if he had stepped up and apologized and uh, showed mm. some contrition and taken responsibility instead of continuing to kind of push back and act as though he didn't do anything wrong. So that's, that's, that's just my point. opinion. That's He's kind point. of his own worst yeah. enemy. You know, he has these, yeah. these gambling um, institutions and stuff. And it's, I guess, you know, I think he lives in Vegas now and just basically signs autographs for money and, I don't know. Pete Rose, uh, I got to meet Pete Rose when I was 11 years old in the Bay Area. I went and 
a pitch hit and run competition. I don't know if you ever did those, file or Frank. And mm-hmm. I made it to yeah. Candlestick, which was like the third phase, and went to Candlestick. The Giants were playing the Big Red Machine, and uh, we stayed in the hotel, walked walking in the lobby, and there's Pete Rose sitting there. And it was like, oh, my God, there's Charlie Hustle. It was the coolest thing. And, you know, I just remember this guy didn't look like he was very physical, um, knew he played harder than anybody, head first slides everywhere, always dirty, and getting 200 hits every single year. And, you know, Pete Rose, the baseball player, deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Maybe we can separate Pete Rose, the baseball player, from – Pete Rose, the manager, who made some bad choices. Um, But I think it's a travesty that the all-time hit leader, the all-time home run leader, um, Roger Clemens, I don't know where he is on the list, maybe third on the strikeout list all-time. Those guys are not in there. But now Mm -hmm. some other guys seem to be getting in who we know as players foul because we played against these dudes. We know there's better players who are not in the Hall of Fame than some of the guys who are in the Hall of Fame. Of course. That's sad to me. I mean, and like Dave said, it was a great question, Dave. You know, it's it's uh, it's a museum. Let's uh, let's put the guys in there, let people go see the history of the game. They can make their own determinations on if what these guys did was fair or not and you know, and we can all move on. I mean, it's a, you know, I, I'm really tired of the argument because it just seems to never end. And uh, mm. I don't think we'll see Pete Rose. If he does ever get in, he won't see it during his lifetime, I'm sure. I want to switch You're over. Right. I want to, sorry, Bob. I want to switch over a little bit and talk about uh, the state of the game and what's going on and with the rule changes and, uh, one of my least favorite guys, Rob Manfred, in my opinion, is, is messing with the integrity of the game by changing rules. And, you know, the, the, the idea is we have to speed up the game because nobody wants to watch it. Well, all the people that love watching baseball and have never cared how long the game lasted because they loved it, no longer want to watch it. But now we're going to spend all this time trying to get people who are casual fans or trying to get new fans to watch the game by speeding up with these new rules. And I think it's totally destroying the fabric of the game. What do you think, Frank? Well, there's a lot of new rule changes that are going to go into effect this season. Uh, Some of them I take issue with others, I think are going to be less of a problem. Um, You know, the, the ones that I really don't like are the ghost runner becoming permanent we're going to see, um, I think it's starting in the 10th inning for this year instead of, right? Starting in the 10th inning, um, runners will mm-hmm. have innings, eat both halves of the inning will start with a runner on second. And that's just not baseball to me. Like that's something that is used to keep little league tournaments running on schedule, in my opinion. Like the beauty of baseball is that somebody's got to win and they got to do it the normal way. If that means it takes 15, 16, 18 innings, so be it. But, um, you know, I'm not a fan of that rule. Um, I'm not a fan of banning the shift. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the pitcher's got to be on the mound. The catcher's got to catch the ball. But the other seven guys, managers should be able to put them wherever the situations dictate. 
And if the guy at the plate can't use the 60% of the field that's wide open and has zero defenders on it, you know, that's, that's kind of a him problem, not a league problem. Then the, uh, the changes that I don't really have much of a problem with are the pitch clock, because I think most workhorse dudes, you know, work pretty quickly anyway. I don't think it's going to be an issue for the better pitchers in the league. Um, and the bigger bases, I think are the changes there are probably overblown. I mean, guys are used to looking for the corner of the base and the base is still going to have a corner, right? They're the same shape. They're going to wind up being about three inches closer together. Maybe it improves stolen bases and offense. Maybe not. We'll see. I don't think those are going to be a huge issue, but it's definitely a weird time for baseball and it's certainly a lot of changes. Yeah. What do you think, Bob? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with Frank. The only one I have a little more of an issue with and might not be an issue, and, and Jeff, you were a middle infielder. And again, going back to my days playing middle infield, I look at the base change side, the size change of the bases. Like Frank explained, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but I think with muscle memory and you have guys that played the game a certain way for like 25, 20, 25 years and now are in the big league, and you're only going to have that change in professional baseball. Like that's not going to happen in, in the lower amateur levels for a while because it, just because of cost alone, you're buying all new bases and equipment. And I think, it's, you know, I, I could be wrong, but Jeff, you could probably comment on more, more than me having played at all the levels. I, I just think the way people turn double plays, the way they run the bases, just muscle memory alone. I don't know. It could be an issue. It could not be an issue. But I just think the base size to, to do a change that is, I mean, physically to the game like all the other things like a pitch clock ghost runners that's not physical that's like change i mean that's like moving the pitchers now closer and i know they moved it back whatever year that was or up but again that, that I, I think it could have more of a, a dramatic change than people realize but i could be wrong too but otherwise the other changes the pitch clock i'm all for i was a quick pitcher anyway uh, i mean that that some of the guys are ridiculous with how long they take um between pitches absolutely insanity to me I don't even know how they stay in their kind of in their flow when they're taking so long between pitches. That's just me. Um, but then the ghost runner, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible, but what are you going to do? I mean, it's, it's, I just think I, I would like to know who's voting on these. I know the voting kind of panel was owners, but then it said there was like three or four players as part of the voting panel. I would like to know why didn't they have a, a straight vote across all players? Because a lot of times players on those panels might be almost done playing the game. Like you might have like a Scherzer on that panel or someone that's going to be retired in a year or two. And they might just be like, yeah, okay. I kind of go with the, go with the, the consensus. And I think the younger players might disagree or, you know, I don't know. I think, but I'd be curious to get your opinion on the base size, Jeff, having been a middle infielder in the big leagues. Yeah. I think it would have been a problem. Um, but when I played, when we played file, you know, the, they could take you out at second base. So my job yeah. was to get out of the way and it was easier to get out of the way when I could step over the base. And like if, if it's a ground ball to third base, I could clear second base easily. That's true. Now with a bigger base, it's going to, it would be more difficult for a shorter guy like me or a guy like Altuve to step across the base and get out of the way of the runner. But he doesn't have to worry about that anymore because they're not allowed to take him out. So yeah, I, that's true. I don't really see yeah. the point in doing it at second base or third base. Uh, another rule that um, I'm curious about is the the limited throws over to first base. 
mm. and what that's going to do for base stealing. Um, that's after, right. Remind me about that role. After the guy throws over twice, he if he throws over a third time, he has to pick the guy off or it's a balk. And from my understanding, oh, wow. this doesn't reset. Um, and I could be wrong. This doesn't reset with a new base runner, which I hope that's not the case. Maybe I don't know the rule 100%, but you know, Derek Holland was talking on the radio the other day that he threw over twice and another guy got to first base. I, I think it was a new hitter, so he threw over there once and they called a balk. It resets if at least one base runner, any base runner advances or if an out is made. Okay. Okay. Clear as going to be hard. I mean, you think these 10 to 15 year veterans are going to be able to adapt to this new rule overnight? Max Scherzer and Verlander. And I'm just waiting for the first time Clayton Kershaw does that long, <laughs> slow stretch where he's bringing his arms down and eighth inning of a two-to-one game with the bases loaded. He's really concentrating, bearing down. All of a sudden, the umpire goes, oh, <laughs> everybody stops and goes, what? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, it's pretty impressive. We were pitching the eighth inning. They're going to blow a gasket. You wonder and- if you're going to see like a record number of box because of uh, you know, like the first year of the rule, you know? They changed that think? rule too. They changed the box rule too. They're going to go back to, to calling more box. And, and That's the, right. Uh, the whole rock the baby thing and the stuff that Henry Jensen, those guys aren't going to be allowed to do that anymore. That's right. Like the guy from the Astros, I was, re- I was re- reading something about it the other day. I hear which Astro pitcher it is. He does that crazy wind-up stretch thing. Steps forward, steps back. Yeah. yeah, and now he can't do it anymore. Talking about doing something your whole life or at least for a long time, and then that, you can't do it anymore. That's going to affect guys for sure. Well, the first time it happens to a, a guy like, you know, we got – three or four guys in my mind, pitchers, veteran guys who are no doubt Hall of Famers in Scherzer, Verlander, and Kershaw. And the first time that one of those guys gets called for <laughs> a ball because they're being deliberate in a key situation in the game, I think I think people are going to go, uh-oh, what do we do here? And I, for one, am looking forward to that happening because to me that's going to point right to the commissioner who's messing with the integrity of the game. Guys like us, we don't care how long the game is. If it's a great game, I don't care if it's five hours, right? right. Of course, I'd rather see a two-hour game with Greg Maddox on 87 pitches, but not everybody <laughs> can do that stuff. And what's really, in my mind, made the game so slow is that now we have guys that are going – Balls to the wall the whole game. Give us all you got for as long as you can. Don't pace yourself. Uh, we'll get you out of there after 75 to 80 pitches, and we'll bring in you know, the, the slew of relievers that we're going to go one inning with each guy. And to me, that's what slowed down the game, not batter stepping out because you know a bug flew in their eye or a pitcher's not sure. Maybe he has second thoughts about a pitch he wants to throw. He wants to step off. Oh, you can't do that now. Now you just have to throw it because the clock's running out. And remember that 80 pitches is only like three or four innings these days. Exactly. <laughs> That's what's boring about the game is, you know, we got eight pitchers a game and, and nobody's making contact because every guy that's running out there is throwing as hard as he can for as long as he can. File, I know you 
probably could have thrown, you know, upper 90s if you freaking reared back and threw it as hard as you could every pitch. But your idea was to get movement on the ball and sink it and get those guys pitched to contact and get them out with as few pitches as you can. And now everything's about the strikeout. Yeah, it's interesting. A buddy of mine coaches at a pretty premier high school in the, in the Philly area. And um, he was saying that because he played, you know, I played high school ball with him. I played against him in college. And he was saying that it's amazing. He's been doing it. He's been coaching these guys for about five years now. And he's like, yes, I'm really, I mean, top tier Division One athletes coming from this school. And he said, you know, sinker ballers actually struggle now because everybody's swing is so down and through and up. Like that HLP kind of philosophy. And he said the the mid to high fastball center center of the of the plate is actually successful, and that's how he teaches that they teach their pitchers to throw that way now. And that's what you see in the big leagues, which drives me nuts. Because I said to him, I said, "Listen, if you're throwing a sinker where it needs to go, they're not hitting it. I don't, I don't you know, I mean, it just they're just not hit putting a barrel on it." But um, but he said that you know it's a different mindset. It's just rare back throw as hard as you can, middle to middle up, and guys are swinging right through the pitches and right under them, and. Um, you know, it's a lot of the straight hard throwers are doing better. He sees now than like the guys with movement, which cracks me up. It's just um, yeah, it's crazy. I actually have yeah, a nice. friend of mine who works for one of the thirty organizations, major league organizations, and uh, he pitched a little in the big leagues. And uh, he was talking to a, a minor league kid. You know what he was thinking in this situation. You know why didn't you try to go down and away or. You know, in that situation, he goes, because I don't know how to do that. He goes, what do you mean you don't know how to do that? He goes, no, they told me to just throw my four-seamer at the top of the zone. Says, so yep. they never talked to you about going in and out and pitching up and down? He goes, no, just four-seamers top of the zone. Well, that's the coaches now, too. I mean, it's funny. I come up, and you know how much there, – there's a handful of coaches that make an impact on your career movement in the professional baseball I mean, this is not to disparage any coaches coaching professional ball, but there's some that just, you know, live in baseball. They get a coaching job because they played years, and they're, they're not necessarily the best coaches like anywhere else. But there's some guys, like I, I had Craig Lefferts as my double-A pitching coach, where guys like Ray Lankford was a pitching coach of mine. Like these guys played in the big leagues for a lot of years, and they could they could help you kind of understand the game. Again, back to the mental aspects of it, where I had other pitching coaches who I won't mention that threw like 98 miles an hour, and they were the worst they didn't understand how you could paint a sinker down and away. They just didn't know. They don't understand that because they never did that. So I think it's, um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of the coaches now are coming without that baseball experience too. At least from what I'm hearing, they're hiring guys with like limited baseball years behind them, and I think that limits the understanding of the game mentally. And I think, like you said, you have kids like that that throw really hard. They get to the big leagues now because they throw so hard and they they can make mistakes and not get hit. But then if they're asked to go, you know, make an adjustment, they struggle. And, uh, you know, it's all, that's always existed, but I, I think it exists more now. But, again, we, we sound like the old guys, but I always say, my last year was a little over 15 years ago. It's not like it was 50 years ago. Right. So I, the game has changed. The last 10 years, like you said, I, I get the Major League Baseball package because I think as former players, we get a great deal on it. We get like 50 or 60% off. And uh, I just get it because the app is pretty legit and it's good. And I watch some games here and there because a lot of the a lot of the managers now in the game are guys I played with or against. And I like to see how they manage the game. And uh, it's just it's it's it is hard to watch. Like I find myself watching basketball and football a lot more now than I watch baseball, which is unfortunate. But it's just yeah, you know, it's more entertaining to me. Yeah, and the 
some of the guys that uh, are being brought in to coach in professional baseball now that you mentioned, you know, guys who work in this one facility in uh, <laughs> Northwest uh, around Seattle, um, you know, that basically everything they do is based on numbers they get off their rep soto machines and they're teaching kids to you know do running guns and throw as hard as you can before their bodies are developed and those guys are being brought in to coach professional athletes um without a clue as far as how to pitch um you know and they say things like uh, okay we're no longer going to use the word extension anymore we're going to change it to this and we're going to do this and we're going to we're going to build your pitch repertoire based on your spin rate and how the ball moves and all. And it has nothing to do with thinking your way through an at bat. You see somebody swing and you say, wait a minute, that guy is on that pitch. I got to move to a different location or throw a different pitch. And that stuff that mm-hmm. sometimes while you, you just see during an at bat, like you, maybe you're facing Manny Ramirez and you think that you have him set up and Manny Ramirez. Yeah one of the best hitters in the history of the game, but and everybody who played with him loved him, but I'm pretty sure he's not the smartest guy who ever played. Okay. It's, it's off the wall stuff. But when he got in that batter's box, he's like Albert mm. Einstein. He could outthink yeah, you. He could set you up. And that's one of the nuances of baseball is that you don't have to be, um, you know, a brilliant mind to be a good baseball player. Some of the best p- baseball players I ever played with were just natural and were just kind of like knuckleheads. And you're like, how is this guy so good? Yeah, I didn't think too much. This dude can't even. It's funny you say that. An F and it is funny you say that. <laughs> the, the, in the big leagues, the one thing I was amazed at, and Delgado was, Carlos Delgado was one that I was just, I was like two lockers down from my rookie, and I remember he had these notebooks of every pitcher he's ever faced, and they keep meticulous notes on every guy. And I was impressed with that because I'm like a student anyway, a student of the game. And I was like, wow, this is pretty impressive. I looked through one of these notebooks one day. And the way he would – and he would do this, and I saw this facing like Manny Ramirez. Gary Sheffield was another guy who did it brilliantly. They would they would take a terrible hack. It's, it's pretty unbelievable. They would take such a bad hack at a pitch, and you're like that, – that, that, I knew one of my sinkers wasn't that good, and he looked so bad on it. I know – and I'm thinking – and then I would the next at bat I would throw him the same pitch and I remember Manny Ramirez this is the perfect example I throw him a backdoor sinker on the on the front side of the plate and he swung and looked like he struck out on it like it looked so ridiculous so the next time up I went back to it I'm like he looks so bad he's got to prove he can hit that and he hit that ball it's it's online he hit that ball like 500 feet off me and I was so I remember thinking to myself like this guy he just set me up. Yep. And Sheffield did the same thing. Roland did the same thing to me. Like they would, they would just look. To, and I was just amazed how good. That's like the next level of hitters. Like and I don't see that much in today's game. I really don't because uh, I watch some games and I try to see if hitters do that. And I don't see that that much. I see like really just selfish hacks. Quite frankly, like oh two one two two. That's a whole other thing that gets me goes gets my. I get so annoyed because I see guys. You know, or even like a three zero count or three one count, they take these hacks that I'm just like, man, just try to get on base. Well, like we talked about but before, again. it's these days it's so much more about like the physics and the physicality than the baseball IQ, and I think that's true both on the pitching side and the hitting side, right? Like, 
you know, we're not going to talk about extension. We're going to talk about spin rate. We're going to talk about physics. We're going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about approach, right? And I mean, for hitters, there's no approach. There's no baseball IQ. You have these guys that are physical specimens, right? Joey Gallo is a big, strong baseball man. He's 6'5", 250, and all muscle. If he had the the baseball IQ of somebody, you know, who played maybe 30 years ago, he'd be winning triple crowns. But instead you have guys go up to the plate, they're hitting a buck 80. They got 60% of the field wide open and seven defenders stacked in right field. And they're just trying to go upper deck, no matter what the count is. And that's what I think is the hardest thing to watch for me. Guys trying to pull off their their A swing or whatever, regardless of the count, the situation, the score, where the defense is positioned. Um, it's just, you know, they have one goal in mind, and that's what they're going to try to do. And if they strike out 200 times a year in the process, so be it. Strikeouts are just another out now, is what they say. Yeah, that's infuriating to me. And we know, or at least we suspect – um, with a high <laughs> degree of certainty that uh, they're being told to do that by the guys upstairs who say, listen, we don't want you to shorten up with two strikes. Keep that A swing. Uh, we don't need you to hit a single. If you hit a ground ball, you're out anyway, supposedly. Um, but keep that swing. And then you see guys hitting below 200 and staying in the major leagues where, I mean, when I first came up, if you hit 220, 230, you had to be a gold glove outfielder, a gold glove infielder, or a gold glove catcher, or you're going to AAA. Because we can't mm-hmm. we can't live with you being almost an automatic out in the major leagues. You're going to have to hit better than that. But now it's accepted. And now you see, you know, I think the overall batting average in Major League Baseball last year was 243. So that means the best players on the planet – can't even get a hit one out of four times. In my last year in 246 with the Blue Jays when I played with foul, I'll be honest, I, I was terrible um, to what I've done in, earlier in my career. I played the whole season with a bum knee, hit 246, felt like a slug, felt like I failed. And that's higher than the, <laughs> the batting average in all of baseball last year. And I sucked. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't fault the players. Like, I know I shit on some of these guys. I'm, like, pretty hard on some of these players. I don't fault the players. They're ultimately just employees. They're being told what to do by their front offices who are just trying to get scientific about it. And I think baseball as an entertainment product is suffering as a result. But it's not the players' fault. They're just following instructions. They're doing what they're told to do. And, um, you know, I think that's just, that's just the truth these days, but yeah, you see guys are really not getting a lot of hits anymore. It wasn't until 2018, I think 2019, maybe that there were more strikeouts than hits in baseball had that had never happened before 150 year history of major league baseball. There were always more hits than strikeouts in total over the course of a season. And ever since then, there have only been more strikeouts than hits, and the gap grows every year. I mean, that that says it all right there, Frank, to me. It's yeah. like, this is the product we were trying to sell to people, and we're advertising, and we're doing all this stuff with 
gambling institutions and you know we're putting erectile dysfunction advertisements on the mound um, to get all these new fans so that um, when Bob Files little girls you know 10 years old and she looks at the game and goes daddy what is Roman what are you gonna say pal I mean that's what's happening <laughs> and we can all point we can point the finger at the commissioner because almost all of this stuff has happened since he's been there and I don't see it getting any better. I think it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And before too long, we're going to have advertisements on uniforms. It's coming. It's going to be like, yeah, I mean, and I won't be able to watch it. I'll be sick to my stomach. Yeah. I mean, you look at the dollar, I mean, having worked in the business professional world for quite a while now, um, everything, the dollar drives everything. And I think, I think to Frank's point, and to what we were just talking about, as long as teams are going to pay these players, I mean, if I'm told to do something and, and I'm kind of like on the fence about it, but I'm going to get paid X amount of dollars, that's going to set me and my family up for the next you know, generation or two. I'm sorry. I mean, having played three and a half years and now working my ass off every day. Phew, hey, man, you want me to do HLP? I'm jumping on board if I can make $10 million a year like Joey Gallo or whatever. He's making $20 million a year. I'm, I'm all about it. I'll strike out 500 times a year. Bellinger. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. Like seventeen point five million. Yeah, you can't. So you can't necessarily. I mean, you can blame the players to a point, but again, if it's if nobody's going to stop opening up their pocketbooks for to pay these guys, then they're going to do what they're kind of being trained to do, and that's the and and what it comes down to is if the fans are going to keep going to the game. Like I was looking at, the, I watched the Phillies in the postseason last year because it's kind of exciting and, and being from Philly and. uh you know, there were some games where the strikeouts were outrageous in the playoffs. And and the one exciting game had like five home runs in it, but I don't know how many total hits they had. And I'm just like, you know, from a fan's perspective, I know people went to the games and paid hundreds upon hundreds of dollars for tickets. And, you know, as long as the fans are going to keep playing the money and the, the average your average fan is going to enjoy going to the game, nothing's going to change. No, you're right. And I was pulling for the Phillies. I love – yeah, that really game cool. with Harper was pretty exciting. That was the one exciting baseball moment I was watching live. That in the rain, it was terrible outside. I just drove home, and that was pretty cool. Um, it was a pretty exciting series. But again, going back to you talk about the playoffs, like Houston, I think that one game went seventeen. How many innings did it go? It's oh like, yeah, you know, and there was how many strikeouts in that game? I could, and, and you know, it's it's the whole thing. Like I, I appreciate the pitching too, and like. Pitchers like Kershaw and all these studs that are still around that pitch eight, nine innings, that throw complete games. I mean, I remember one day I woke up on Twitter. Uh, this is when, before you were suspended, Jeff, and I would always look on Twitter every morning and I saw someone's like, great pitchers duel last night. I was like, oh, between the Phillies and somebody, it was Wheeler and somebody, a pitchers duel. Might have been in the playoffs early on. And I'm like, pitchers duel, uh, what was it, like two complete games on both sides? And each guy, one guy went five innings, the other guy went six. Damn. So, <laughs> That's the pitcher's duel now. So we sound like such old heads talking about it like that, but he's a little younger than both of us. And I know Frank agrees. Like, you know, giving the bullpen a rest, too. That's why you see guys going one inning out of the bullpen with the pitching change because you can't have guys go five days in a row when you're using them every single day. And, like, when you have a guy like a, like whoever, like a holiday, when we play with him, he would, you know, he's going eight, nine, seven, eight, nine innings. And then the bullpen, you know, you had the day off. And that, that kind of sets you up for the full season when you have one or two horses like that. Um, but, it only exists on a couple teams now. Yeah, you know who's cool to watch? Uh, Sandy Alcantara. Last year, he threw more complete games than any other team in baseball. 
He threw six complete games. No other team in MLB had six complete games as a team. Wow. That's funny. Well, my old pitching coach, Ray Lankford, played for the A's for a lot of years. He had 27 complete games one season. Isn't that Rick Lankford? Oh, Rick Lankford. Yeah, I keep calling him Ray. Yeah, because yeah, I'm Rick like, Ray Lankford, man. He's a, he, no, Rick, Rick Lankford, yeah. And he, and he he's couldn't a brother who played for the Cardinals, left-handed hitter. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He was, he was a full, Yeah. <laughs> Rick Lankford was my AAA pitching coach, and he, he could – I mean, his elbow was torn to shreds, but uh, the stories he would tell, man. Yeah, I remember watching – Again, it's like us. I remember watching him pitch for the Oakland A's back when they had like uh, – uh, That's right. Dave Stewart, Bob Wells. Yeah, Smoke. Yeah, Dave Stewart. He was the assistant GM of Toronto when we were there. Yeah, was, I played uh, against him. Um, yeah, when I first came up to Bigley, he was pitching for for the A's, and I was like, I knew about him. I'd watched him a little bit. And I'm like, step in the box. I was like, he's got his hat all bent, and he looks so <laughs> mean. And they said, oh, he knows karate. And it's like, ooh, this dude's scary, man. And it's like, he knows karate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want to get him. I might want to win my butt. I don't know. <laughs> up there, you know, and file. You mentioned I won't keep you guys much longer. This has been great, but one of the things you mentioned earlier about pitching inside, mm. and I, it's never really talked about anymore. But the fear, and I posted a video the other day of Nolan Ryan busting dudes off the plate, and and you said you read his book, uh, mm-hmm. Fear Factor for Hitters. When you came in there, and you knew a guy had a good fastball, and he wasn't afraid like a Pedro or, or Clemens to bust you in off the plate. That way you can't cover away, man. That was scary sometimes. And you had to respect that. They could come in at any time, a Pat Hinkin even, and bust you off the plate. And the, the fear of getting hit with a ball throwing 97 miles an hour was real. And I don't see yeah. it anymore because one pitch inside and we're warning both benches. And now uh, we have to play patty cake out there and be nice because we don't want anybody to get hurt. That's missing from the game. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, when I was coaching pitchers, I mean, that's the one thing I would I would teach because my, my college coach taught that a lot with our pitch. Like nobody wants, even if you're throwing 80, 80 miles an hour, an eighty mile an hour baseball hurts bad. And you just throw. You I always said there's pitching inside and there's pitching inside with fear like creating fear and there's a difference like you pitch an inside fastball and a guy like you know does a jeter and kind of you know doesn't move his feet but just moves out of the way that's different than you throw inside i mean i used to throw inside above the waist not trying to hit the guy but making them move off and making their feet move or but you know i mean and i think again being a hitter you just don't want to get hit it's in the back of your mind and i always told pitchers even to this day when i talk to like young pitchers you can be whoever you want to be on the mound. You can be the nicest person ever, but on the mound, you, if you create a perception of fear that you know you're a little nuts. Um, it's amazing how many hitters will will kind of fall to that. And I think um, I don't see it much today at all, especially how hard guys throw. I mean, I don't know if the guns are juice, whatever, but guys throwing 97 miles an hour consistently. I mean, you buzz somebody's tower once, you don't got nobody in that dugout that's going to dig in. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's like. You know, I, I just I think it's such a weapon that's not used well at all. And it's it's funny, Nolan Ryan book. That's all he talked about, and that's how I learned how to pitch inside, like with with to be effective, mm-hmm. not to pitch inside to be, you know, just a jerk. Effectively wild. Uh, Can you guys yeah. imagine facing like Bob Gibson? I can't even imagine like how terrifying that Rysdale. would be. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, all those guys. Yeah, it's, it's great, though. I love watching pitchers do that because it makes hitters kind of fear. And it's, um, you know, it's that, that's something that, I mean, I would have never sniffed the big leagues if I didn't pitch inside. And I think even p- being in the big leagues, it was hard sometimes to pitch inside. I remember, you know, just a, <laughs> my, my rookie year, we after 9-11, we wind up finishing the season in, in Baltimore, and that was Cal Ripken's last year. And I had to face Cal Ripken the one night, and the game was out of reach, I think, but I was facing Cal Ripken. And I remember being like, this is Cal Ripken. My first time and only time facing him. And I remember I, I wanted to pitch him inside because he always took that first step towards the plate. And I pitched him inside, but it kind of got away from me a little bit, and I dusted him, went to the ground. Uh-huh. And all the flashes are going off. Like, Cal Ripken's on his last game, so I'm like – People are booing. I'm like, I'm going to get killed if I, if I, I was freaking out. I couldn't believe how nervous it made me. I was like, oh, my goodness. And then I remember the next pitch, I kind of left it over the plate, and he ripped it, and it was foul. But I remember him being, remember him just staying in there, which I was pretty impressed with. Like, good hitters will do that. But I remember just like, you know, even if it's – it made me nervous to go inside on like a guy like that because, again, I'm a huge fan. Like, my whole life, and pitchers are people too. But if you can get 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 past that, you can really, you know, you can be effectively wild, quite frankly. But I don't know if the guys have that kind of control today with these 97-mile-an-hour fastballs either to pitch one inside and to be able to paint the outside corner. Um, but, I, but, you know, guys did it all the time. Clemens, I mean, the amount of guys he hit. Clemens hit Josh Phelps, my, my I think it was 2004. Josh Phelps hit two home runs off Clemens. Rookie, his rookie year, and Clemens – they were up by like five or six and then we had the bases loaded and Phelps was up and he drilled Phelps with the bases loaded on per Like I know it was on purpose. <laughs> There's no way he would, he drilled Phelps because he had two homers and he sent a message to Phelps right in the back. And again, I remember I was friends with, with Josh and I remember him saying, he's like, man, he's like, I got to be careful when I, it was in the back of his mind every time he faced him in the future. And uh, you know, it's different breed, different mindset. Yeah. What do you got, Dave? You got a question, buddy? Yeah, it kind of goes in line with what Bob was saying and, and Frank about the, the power pitchers like Clemens. Clemens came out and he got this from older pitchers, uh, passed down from Gibson to Nolan Ryan to him. And the question he asked rhetorically was, do you know what my most important pitch was? And nobody knew the answer. His answer was the second knockdown pitch. You know why? And I was like, why? Because they knew I meant the first one. Oh, wow. That's mm. great. That's mm. great. I never That's heard that, actually. I love that. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate enough to play with Nolan Ryan, Roger Clemens, Pedro Martinez, Roy Halladay, Chris Carpenter. I mean, and these dudes were intimidating, hard-throwing right-handers. And, you know, when somebody did something to one of our guys, eye for an eye, you knew the next day if Pedro was on the mound, there was going to be some retaliation. And I never forget We were in Oakland. It's, I've told the oh. story before. We're in Oakland, and we have either Wakefield or Chris Hammond pitching uh, somebody who doesn't throw hard. And, and Omedo Signs leaned into one over the plate, like got hit in the knee or something, and jogging the first. And Pedro was pitching the next day, and Pedro yelled out from the dugout and says, You want to get hit? And Omedo Signs looked in the dugout as he's running the first. He goes, You want to get hit? He goes, We'll take care of that tomorrow. And just kind of shook his head. I just kind of looked at him, whatever. It's like, well, whatever, dude. Next day, first day, be right between the numbers. Oh. Like, yeah, you want to get hit by oh, this hot You can get hit by 96, too. 
It's all it's all about the perception too. Like playing with Holiday, you play with Holiday. I played a lot of years with him, and off the field, he's the he was a low key guy, not not intimidating at all off the field at all, not even a little bit. But then on the mound, you know, you hear stories of people talking about playing against him, and they were like fearful of him. Like he was a he was he was an animal. I mean, he was nuts on the mound. Like he would do whatever it takes. But off the field, it's all about creating that perception of fear. Off the field, I mean, he was he was a softy. Um, yeah, he's the nicest but, guy. Yeah. Him and Carp playing, yeah. playing cards yeah. every day in the in the clubhouse when they're rookies. And I walk in there, like, "What's up, Fry Dog? You want to play?" It's like, yep. how are you guys so intimidating and monsters on the mound?" <laughs> and it's like, it's like the nicest guys in the world, you know, in in the clubhouse. It's the beauty of baseball, yeah. right? Heck yeah, heck yeah. Yeah. Well, this is. Uh, been great uh yeah we're gonna have to do this more often um i appreciate you two guys more than you know um you've been supporting me and the shigon nation for over three years now um it's unfortunate with the what happened on twitter but i'm going to keep rolling on the the other platforms and i've really enjoyed my time on facebook um just trying to keep educating parents and kids to what some of these gurus out there are teaching their kids that it, you know, we all believe is, is hurting their development and potentially their futures in the game. But I appreciate you guys taking the time, especially on a Saturday. I know file, you got to get up every day at four in the morning and work crazy <laughs> hours. And I know Frank's uh, a busy guy, but uh, I do appreciate you guys taking the time today and Dave, another great job producing the show. And, uh, Hope you guys have a great weekend. I'm going to run over to my son's high school uh, where he just hit a double in his alumni game, and he hadn't played baseball in eight years. So I'm going to go check him out. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you guys have a great weekend. I appreciate you being on here. This is uh, – Yeah, man. Yeah. And you thank too, you. Jeff. Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. We'll keep plugging away. I'll try to, you know, get a little more involved in Twitter if they kind of get back to the way it was. But uh, appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. This is Jeff Fry signing off from the Shigon Podcast. Shigon! <laughs> <laughs>